out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed we are. Hello and welcome to The C86 Show. I am David Eastall, and as always, you know we love a special guest on this programme. This week it's going to be the turn of the bassist, Pete Jones. Yes, Pete Jones, one-time member of Public Image Limited, also has played with people like Department S, and as well as various other sort of prog bands, and Brian Brain. Yes. Brian Brain. Anyway, this is the interview. Make notes because uh, there's a lot of detail and I'm going to test you at the end to make sure you are paying attention. Anyway, um, it's a great interview. Pete's an amazing guy. And um, yes, it's a fascinating story. There's so much detail. Anyway, after a bit of chat about this and that, we got down to those early, yes, interested in the early musical influences. And this was Pete's response. Pete, take it away. Yes, well, I, I had an older brother. My, my brother was three years older than me, and my sister was seven years older than me. Um, so a lot of the background to that sort of uh, coming up to my teen years was the backdrop of what my elder siblings listened to. My sister was into Tamla Motown. She would buy every Tamla Motown release going, um, play them on a dance set record. Uh, my brother was more into rock music, so I kind of leaned towards the, the rocky part. Um, so when I got into my teens, I guess I, I started to go a bit, kind of proggy um I, I was into um you know black sabbath a bit of deep purple and cream and people like that um jeff beck um but then got into yes in, in a big way when i was in my sort of 12 13 14 era um and that and that was that, that's the way I, I kind of leaned musically when i started playing guitars i started uh, going towards the prog end of the market it's quite unusual for somebody who joined one of the biggest punk bands on the planet eventually. Yes, well, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite... Well, it's funny because I, I sort of spoke to somebody who was in a bit of a thrash band in the early 90s and she said she was like really into Marillion in the 80s and they were saying, look, please do not mention that in interviews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mind about my prog past. My friends take the mickey out of it sometimes and uh, I, I kind of, I was born in 57, so when I was 16, you know, sort of formative teenage years that's like 73 um i could have i could have musically in terms of my musical taste been done with being born three or four years later um so 73 i was getting into music and started playing guitar obviously punk hadn't come along um so we had what we had and i i kind of enjoyed the musicality of things and, and difficult things to play uh, so i naturally tended towards the prog frock yes. end of the market had but, I been born but, three or four years later, I'd have been doing that right in the middle of 1976. Yes. So I, I probably would have had totally different outlook and influences at that early formative time, you know. But it's interesting because my brother was born in probably the same year as you, and he yeah. he he loved prog. You know, that was his period. Where, you know, he was at that age where, you, you know, where, where, I don't know, there is an age where you're just obsessed with music, aren't you? You know, and it doesn't matter what decade it is, that's the music you're going to love. And I remember Lemmy saying, well, you know, you know, it was all the bands like Eddie Cochran and, and um, yeah, you know, from the Little Richard up, upwards, you know, the, those kind of people like Buddy Holly, you know, was just, the, the, you know, the early Beatles and stuff like that. And David Bowie was very similar. So, you 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 know, the 18-year-old is always, that's the age, isn't it? Um, I know. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you wanted to rebel, when, when I was uh, early teens, I remember talking to my schoolmates, we would listen to, you know, 
heavier rock music as a as a re- rebellion against what was in the charts because that was all like Chicory Tip and Manfred Mann and stuff, you know, the, the pop pop yes. dross. So if you wanted to rebel against that, you just really had to go and listen to some uh, prog rock or hard rock. Yeah, so. but but you know, my brother had the you know the the classic kind of prog albums from that period, and I have to say though, even now when I listen to things like you know, if you go to Yes, there's mm. an album called Fragile, and at the last song, which only goes for ten minutes, called Heart of a Sun- oh, Sunrise. Sunrise. Yeah. I mean that for me, you know, is still phenomenal today. And then you have a song like Don't Kill the Well, which is almost quite punky, isn't it? Let's face it. <laughs> mm. I mean, it's still got a real drama about it. You know, I mean, you can't it's... knock it, can you? No, it's it's all basically rock and roll when you boil it down to its inherent parts. It, just with the prog rock, you had longer songs and more difficult time signatures. <laughs> yes. That's about it, you know. They love those time signatures. But, yeah, so when did you pick up the guitar? So when I started learning in earnest was when I was, I think, was 14. And the school playground, my friend decided we was going to start a band. And that's where it all started. It was his idea. And I wanted to be the drummer. And my other friend said, no, I'm going to be the drummer. And I said, oh, I'll be the guitarist then. And my other friend said, no, I'm going to be the lead guitarist. I didn't know what was left. It was either bass guitar or, or keyboards, I suppose. And I thought, well, bass guitar is probably the easiest one to learn. So I, I chose that. So it's by default I, I started to learn bass guitar. Um, and that's where I've, you know, that's where I stayed on. That's the instrument by choice. Um, so it's really my, my school friends decided to start a band. Yes, but the interesting because I come from the you know the East Anglian region and and really there wasn't anybody doing bands. It was kind of playing football and kind of messing around trying to climb trees and all that kind of <laughs> malarkey. So how did you? I mean, getting instruments you know back in those days it wasn't quite so easy. You know, you didn't just go to Amazon, look at the reviews and sort of go right, we'll buy that one. And no, we did. We didn't have instruments when we started the band. We actually started the band. We had a name. We were called Cosmosis. Believe it or not. And uh, we didn't have any instruments, but we aspired to having instruments. So we'd talk endlessly about becoming famous one day, and we decided that if we hadn't made it by the time we was 18, then it was too late, we'd be too old. Uh, so we had a, kind of had a plan. And we just saved up our pocket money and, and bought a couple of really cheap guitars and a cheap amplifier. The drummer was playing on cardboard boxes and Tupperware containers. Um, and our other friend had a little Bon Tempe keyboard that was – similar sounding to an organ although not very not very good quality so we kind of had the the remnants the rudiments of instruments that none of us could actually play properly but we still tried nonetheless we gave we gave it a go you know yes absolutely but then i mean did you when you got your bass guitar did you have a few lessons and was told this is what you need to do no no i never had any lessons i was self-taught bought a couple of books we listened to yes records and i bought the yes manuscript music so i try and work out the dots on the page um and what really saved me was i i got asked to join another band a proper band after when i was about 17 18 i got asked to join a band who were actually quite good musicians and the, the guitarist in that band was very gifted and he basically showed me how to play properly so we did all original material um he showed me what bass lines to play so i kind of learned through him for a good two or three years and that was my grounding in the instrument. By the, by the end of that, I could play quite proficiently. Yes. And did it, you know, like, obviously the bass is holding it together, sort of having timing, you know, understanding about 
you know, all those kind of concepts. Did that sort of also sort of come quite naturally? Uh, rhythmically, you know, the rhythm, I mean, the bass guitar links melody and rhythm. So you're working with the rhythm section and also the me- melody of the, of the song. Um, and it was always working with the drummer that I found fascinating. The rhythmic elements were more interesting to me than the musicality of it, of it all. Uh, my grounding in musical theory even now is, is not fantastically good. I know some basics, but I'm not a very proficient musician in that respect. So I was very much interested in playing with the drummer, and I found that, um, that pairing of a, of a good drummer with bass guitar was quite exciting. I used to love doing that. Yes. And then when you, as, as this was happening, obviously punk was also kind of going on at the same time. Were you, were you sort of looking over your shoulder thinking, oh, this is quite good? Did that slightly give you that moment where you thought, oh, forget Chris Squire, I'm going to be no, Sid, no, oh, I'm gonna oh, be Sid con- Vicious? Oh, no, not at all. Au contraire, we thought it was a joke. Uh, I, I remember that quite clearly, that we were playing our, our long extended opuses in difficult time signatures in this prog rock band I was in. And we saw the Sex Pistols' first TV appearance on on TV, and we thought it was actually a joke, because to us they just weren't great musicians. It was very simply played. The singer couldn't sing. The musicians, the guitarists, could just just bashing out basic bar calls. So that wasn't very good, was it? No. We had no idea, absolutely no concept or or, or vision of the tsunami of of social. Um, influence that punk was about to have yes. and so it consequently swept over us and sailed off into the distance without us on it you know it was a ship that sailed past and we were it, we weren't included we carried on playing these silly songs for you know months after the punk uh, movement really took off 75 76 and it missed us it, we, we we missed the boat of course we were living in in rural watford comfortable middle class families so we weren't struggling on the streets of London and, uh, and roughing it, you know. So, yeah, it, it, the whole thing missed us until it was too late. Yes, because it's interesting. There's a few, quite a few bands who were just, I mean, so much about music is about the timing, isn't it, really? You yeah, know, th- there absolutely. Was, and there was a kind of, I know people like there was, who I really like, Niels Lofgren, and there was another band called Clover who the backing band played on one of El- Elvis Presley, Elvis, Elvis Costello's um, first album. And again, you know, they were about, I think that featured Huey Lewis, actually. And I think they were just about to say, right, here we go. And it's like, oh, I'm really sorry, but punks just appeared. And you guys, you look like members of the Eagles. It's really, it's kind of over. So you're going to have to go back because we're, we're signing the next punk band, whatever they look like. But, yeah. You know, so that was yeah, kind seeing, of... Seeing bands, to, for us to see bands get up on stage who couldn't play their instruments very well, that's what it was all about for us. We were musos, so you had to be a good musician. And we couldn't understand this this um, social movement that was going on at the time. So, you know, we were quite naive, ignorant, and um, shielded from a lot of that, what was going on. So we yes. just saw it, saw the musicality of it or the lack of musicality in punk as a, as a really bad thing, you know. Yeah. Also, obviously learned differently from, from that after that. But I could say the timing, if I'd have been born three years later i might have been just learning my instrument when punk came along and i might have joined a, a little punk band and, and mm. learned my instrument that way you know like i say it's all about the timing of, of where you sit um against the backdrop of what's going on at the time i know god you could i'm sure you had that conversation with johnny many years later but then you, this was the band <laughs> called blonde wasn't it and that's that became, right we were called blonde yeah and they and then obviously there was blondie 
They, yeah. they sort of... Well, that's, we had to ch- that's when we had to change our name because Blondie came over to yes. the UK to tour. We, we, we called their record company and said, that's our name. You can't use that. Of course, they were on a major record label, much bigger than we were. And they said, well, you can do one. <laughs> you, change, you better change your name. We just had a really expensive backdrop made. So we had to throw that in the skip and change our name. To, we changed it to Bogarts at the time, which was equally as bad name, but uh, not quite as successful as the Blondie name became. No, and no one else <laughs> said, look, sorry, mate, but there's already a band called Bogart. <laughs> wow. God, it's so difficult to get a name, isn't it? But then you got your first release. You got a first seven-inch single from from that 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 combo or that new lineup. Not yeah, we had we met up with um, by chance or a mutual friend with a guy from EMI called Martin Hooker. Now he went on to to form Secret Records, which put out a lot of uh, punk and oi bands, the Exploited, etc., Infra Riot, and uh, he also went on to form Music for Nations and was very big and doing bands like Twisted Sister and, and we worked with Metallica for many years, became very successful. But in the very early days, he worked for EMI and he formed this record company called Secret Records and we put out this little single with this band called Bogart. But uh, most of those copies went in the skip as well. So, you know, they didn't, didn't sell many apart from our, to our friends. Yes. But that was, that was our first release. On vinyl, as everything was back in those days, it was, there was only vinyl or cassettes, I suppose. Yes, which is kind of... So then what happens, because then we have the, the Thatcher years in 79 and then life changes quite drastically because a lot of the bands I've interviewed who started forming in the early 80s, they, yes, there was, a, there was certain, a lot of, you know, like despondency and unemployment and, oh, well, we'll just hang out, get a bit drunk and, and play some music if we can. And, and Yeah, yeah uh, we, we kind of, all, all, all of us lot were on, were on the dole. You just had to sign on then. There was no kind of interviews and having to go for jobs. You just went in every couple of weeks, signed your name and got your money. And it was just enough to scrape a living on. And we spent most of our time in the, in the rehearsal room playing out instruments. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of a funny time. I didn't have any, any money at all. So we, uh, we had a very slim social life, you know, you couldn't afford to go out drinking all weekend. You just had to pick one evening and spend all your dull money on that one night out. <laughs> yes. You had to wait another week before you got some money again. Often during happy hour, which was sometimes between five and six. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was. That, yeah. That, yeah, it's cool. I, I sort of remember being, yeah, that unemployment period was quite strange because it didn't feel like a social stigma. It just felt like, oh, yeah, a lot of people are going to do that for a while. And and there was Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance as well, which kind of mm. helped people mm. do it. And mm. I, I do remember, I think if you lived in the countryside, you didn't even have to go in. You could just sign. I don't know. I think you just you just had to scribble your name on a bit of paper and then post it to the dole office. And then yeah, that was it. Very very easy to do. It was all very easy and, <laughs> and casual. But they didn't care. It was the it no. was the eighties, wasn't it? So then, what's hap- what happens with your next musical moment? So we had this transition with this band. We we went on changed our name to Bogart. Then we changed it again to a, a, we called ourselves the Hots. I think it was after that. And it was then we lost our drummer. Our drummer went to join a band called Lone Star, who were a, a, a heavy rock band. Um, so we had to find another drummer, and that's where I met Martin Atkins, who who went on to become Pill Pill's drummer. Um, so he came and joined us, and we we were doing gigs around the London circuit, London and the home counties. We're doing all right. Turned a bit kind of new wavy, trying to do something a bit more in line with what was happening at the time. We dropped all the silly time signatures and the and the prog rock, so we kind of moved on a bit. Um, but then Martin left it, that band to go and join Public Image Limited. Yes. Uh, and then the whole band split up. 
And at the very same time he went to join Public Image Limited, I got asked through a mutual friend to go and play for Cowboys International and do a European tour with them. So Martin went off and joined Pill. I went off and joined Cowboys International. And how did you find your, uh, the Euro? You obviously love playing live. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of um, enjoyed playing live to a degree. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot about playing live I really detest and still do to this day. And I was much happier in a studio environment. I, I love the studio. I love the technology of it and the, all the knob twiddling and everything else. Um, playing live was great when the gig was great. If you were played up to an empty room, which I had done on many occasions, it's not so great, you know. Or there were, uh, quite often, some of the gigs we played at, violence would break out, and if you was on the wrong end of that, it could become quite a uh, disappointing experience. Yes. So, you know, it wasn't always great playing live, but when you played a good gig in front of a good crowd, and you got paid, and you got home safely, yeah, it was it was fun to do. And because with Cowboys International, you were on a major label, or they were on a major yeah, label. Yeah, they were signed to Virgin Records. So, Virgin yeah, we, we, we was well paid and it was looked after. So that's my first real stint of being uh, professional, if you like. Which is nice. But Yeah, it was nice, yeah. But it does. But did it break up in a weird and wonderful way in Berlin? Yeah, we did. Cowboys International were a good band. You know, they were kind of knocking on the door of success. They had a decent album out called Original Sin, and they've been on Old Grey Whistle Test. You know, they're kind of at that, on that rung up the ladder, which was just a couple of rungs away from, from huge success. Um, a talented songwriter, Ken Lockie, who wrote the songs and was the front man, he wrote some decent songs. And we went away to Europe to play, and we, I didn't really get on with the band particularly well, but uh, we played uh, in Berlin on the last gig of the tour. And... Um, they never played again. That was their last gig, unbeknownst to me. We came back from that, and I was expecting perhaps do some recording or play some more dates, but then Ken Lockie just split the band up, and they never played again. Blimey, the mystery. But you did. Yeah, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Did you? Because uh, they did feature. Is it Marco Peroni at one stage with the band? Marco Peroni was on guitar. Yeah, he'd left before I joined, and when I, when I joined, they had Stevie Shears, who was one of the original members of Ultravox on guitar. Right. Blimey. Have you ever have you have you ever bumped in or or spoken to any of the members ever? Yeah, I have actually. The drummer Paul Simon, I'm still in contact with. He was a lovely fella. I enjoy playing playing. He's one of the nice guys of the group. Ken Lockie, I met again when I went to New York and joined Public Image Limited because Ken was living in New York as well and had been working with Keith Levine and and Pill. So he was in the, he was in that group of people. So I met him again then. He lives in Atlanta now, so I don't have much contact with him. Although I was messaging messaging him the other day and we were still talking via via social media excellent god yeah so is this the moment that you then get the call from for peel yeah well when martin finished playing with public image limited and did a tour of the united states in 1980 he came back to the uk i came back from playing with cowboys international and he'd started a side project called brian brain which was this um three-piece anarchic little skit group with martin would play all the drums, record them on tape, and then we'd play the tape live and he would sing along to it and I'd play bass and a guy called Bobby Surgeon would play guitar. So we were working on this Brian Brain stuff. We released a couple of singles and we was working on an album. And we also used his connection with Pill to, to blag uh, a couple of tours of the States. It's quite remarkable, really, that we organised tours of America from a phone box in Willesden. Mm -hmm. But indeed we did, and we went to America three times with Brian Brain, toured in a 
in a car because there was only three of us and went all over America um, playing the new wave clubs, of which there were many, uh, those sort of uh, 80 to 82, this was. There's loads of new wave clubs all over America. You could just endlessly tour around playing those. And it sounds, because a lot of people I spoke to, America often, when they do the tour of America, it kind of breaks them and they come back and they split up. But obviously your experience wasn't too bad with Brian Brain. You must remember we was at the kind of low end of the market, so we're playing quite small venues. We would often play on a Monday or a Tuesday night when nobody was there. Uh, we'd often play the night after somebody more famous had come through town, so nobody would go out the night after. Uh, so we played to very small crowds. We didn't get a lot of money. But we had a very generous drinks rider, so we'd always have a big case cases of beer and bottles of spirits. So we would just take it as a jolly. We were in our early 20s. Um, so it's basically a big piss up around America for us. That's all it was. We, we weren't trying to break America. We had no illusions that we were going to sell millions of records there. We just wanted to go and have a laugh, basically. Excellent. And get drunk. But then, fame. But then, yeah. Well, while we was in America with Brian Brain, we played in New York, and that's where John Lydon and Keith Levine had, had based, started to base themselves after the Flowers of Romance album. They went to New York. And they were living there. So that, we met up with them. They came to a Brian Brain gig and they said to Martin, look, we're, we're starting to record some new public image material. We want you to come and drum for us. So, so Martin kind of rejoined Pill at that point. And at the end of our Brian Brain tour in 82, Martin stayed in America, in New York, to play with Pill. And I, I came home. Well, within weeks, Martin phoned me up to say, look, we can't find a bass player. Do you want to come over and play bass? And I wasn't quite sure because I didn't particularly like Pill at the time. They weren't my favourite band. And I'd met John and Keith and they – let's just say that the social uh, – their social airs and graces weren't particularly well formed. Yes. Uh, let's put it like that. Um, so I knew they were going to be difficult to work with. So I did kind of – I was a bit reticent about joining. But then I thought, well, look, I'm living at my mum's on the dole again so I might as well go to America and start getting drunk again so I said alright then I'll do it yes. got on a plane and flew to the States when they it... had tried to they had tried to find a bass player before that I think they got Bill Laswell in but he wanted a ridiculous amount of money to play bass and he was out and then I, I found out recently that Buster Cherry Jones came down to play um, bass and he was totally unsuitable because he was doing all this slap bass stuff um, and then they obviously they realised oh, I'd be cheap. <laughs> I think that was the that was the defining um, quality that I had. Yes. I, I I thought at the time it's because of my superlative and silky bass playing skills, but it wasn't. It was because I was cheap. Cheap and cheap and cheap and available. available. So I, off I, off I went, got on the plane and, and went to America, and then spent seven or eight months uh, in New York. Which is yes, an interesting because I I did an interview with a guy. He was a, um, in the punk band in New York in the 70s, early and then late 70s, from a band called Pure Hell, which I think they, that's what they name. I think they were an all-black um, sort of punk band. And he met kind of Sid Vicious and Nancy, and it did sound like everybody was in on her, you know heavy drugs, basically. You know, things were messy. I mean, what was it like when you were there during that period? Because obviously uh, people had died before then, which is rock well, and roll. Yeah, yeah. it's taking your life into your hands. You know, I, I must say the Brian Brainters were very chaotic and often got violent. I mean, we got put in hospital on more than one occasion while we were touring with Brian Brain. 
and uh, it was very, very dangerous. But I didn't care. You know, when you're in your early 20s, you kind of full of bravado and you don't give a shit. So you just go and do it. You don't worry about the dangers. But New York at that time was a very, very dangerous place to be. 82, 83. It's one of the most dangerous cities in the world. The crime rate was, you know, phenomenal. Uh, we stayed at the Uruguay Hotel, which is on West 44th Street. And a lot of English bands stayed there when they toured because that, that was a really cheap hotel. It's subsequently become a really expensive boutique hotel. Yes. But the Uruguay Hotel was on 44th Street, which wasn't far from Times Square. And just north of there was all the seedy sex cinemas, uh, a lot of pimping and a lot of drugs. So to walk around there as, a, as an English kid, <laughs> full of bravado, wearing a tartan suit, <laughs> you were... It's obviously one thing that's very stupid, um, but we just didn't care. You know, we got threatened. We got, we saw, you know, the people selling drugs on the street, hookers on the street, people were getting killed. You know, it was just a really, really weird time. We would travel on the subway late at night and people would say to us, you, you must be mad going out at two in the morning uptown on the on the subway. And we'd say, really? Well, it was all right. <laughs> Obviously, really stupid, but we we came out of that pretty much unscathed. So I remember that really gritty, really um, a really vibrant, really vibrant city. I mean, it was fantastically vibrant, you know, just with all that colour there. Absolutely fantastic city. And I've not been back since the eighties. I don't think I'll ever go back to New York. So I don't want to see it as it is now. Yes, uh, sanitised New York. I've got this memory and this picture of it in my own head of what it was like. And I want to retain that, you know. Well, it's a bit, I guess, you know, I remember going through that phase of Martin Scorsese films with uh, Robert De Niro. There was Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. And there was always that kind of, you know, it was quite a romantic looking. I mean, it was, her, it's, and <clears throat> it was, I would have died. I, I wouldn't have survived at all. But, you know, when you're a kid and you're getting very influenced by stuff, you think, wow, that looks amazing. It was just like that. You know, I remember the first time I went to New York, 1980, I, I, it was like stepping into your TV set while Kojak was on or something. You know, it was so familiar because you'd seen all the images on TV. But to actually see uh, uh, the sights and smell the smells and, and hear the sounds was, was fantastic. You know, I would go into a deli and order pastrami on rye because I thought that's what I'd heard on TV. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I'd ask for it anyway. Yes. It's bloody horrible. Absolutely. Uh, but that was a that was a time when the band were recording. You'd record they'd recorded the Flowers of Romance and then there was this one called a commercial zone. Was that what you were working on at that that's time? That's what we were all working on. They'd worked on it previous to my arrival. So when I arrived, a lot of the tracks had been recorded. Um, but a lot of the bass parts hadn't. So I went in and recorded bass parts to a lot of the songs that already were done. And that was including uh, This Is Not A Love Song was recorded during that period. Um, so I went and recorded on that. But the commercial zone never got released uh, officially. It was kind of an unofficial bootleg released by Keith Levine. Once the internal wrangles had all busted up and broken down, he released that through his own devices. Yes. So it, that, But that's what we were all working on. I mean, Virgin Records were... Virgin Records was were supposed to be financing an album and they had been sending money not that any of it came my way um and richard branson had been over to listen to some of the tapes that we'd we'd recorded and then just said well you're not getting any more money you've had enough money you're not getting any more you just need to deliver a finished album so it was kind of a very it was a very difficult time yeah and so the only it? way we could, we could make money was to go and do some shows which is what we did 
And did um, I mean, what was it like? Because you know, I mean, we've we've heard we've seen Johnny quite a lot, haven't we? Let's face yeah. it. But what yeah. about um, Keith? What was he like to work with? Uh, it, uh, quite quite awkward at times, I would say. <laughs> he had his own particular problems that he was dealing with at a time. He had a history of drug abuse that uh, has been documented, and I can't I couldn't say what he was doing in that respect while I was there. However, his behaviour was quite strange to deal with on a daily basis. It's very up and down. Um, he, he wanted every gig to be uh, an event rather than touring like a rock band. Well, of course, that's all well and good doing an event, but only playing once a week isn't really going to generate enough income to pay for a band uh, to live and record. Um, so while I was there in the seven months, I think we did 26 shows in seven months, you know, one a week, four a month which is a ridiculously stupid way of trying to, to earn money. Yes. Well, he was very well paid. People were very well paid then, you know, thousands of dollars a night. But to play once a week on average is just pathetic. Yes. But like I say, they didn't want to be a, a rock band, which that's exactly what we were. We were just a rock band. So we should have been out playing every night. We could have paid the studio bill. Everybody in the band could have got paid properly. Um, it was just a, a complete and utter shambles and, and chaos. So uh, uh, Keith... And John had their part to play in that. I guess I had my part to play in that because I didn't really say anything about it. I didn't challenge what was going on. Uh, but it was, it was a very, very difficult and awkward situation. Yes. Because I don't know. Um, yes, it was John French who was in the Captain Beefheart band and they did Trap Mask Replica. And obviously that was kind of quite, quite an extreme experience being recording that album because I think they were sort of all, they weren't quite kidnapped, but they, they were slightly kidnapped <laughs> in, in a house recording, which yeah. slightly left him a bit scarred because he was quite young at the time. And yeah. he, he's written a book about it to try and cope. But um, I mean, was it, did you feel like you were with these kind of uh, amazing kind of geniuses who were going to make something <laughs> brilliant? Or were they kind of just a bit, bit off their head and just had a lot of problems? Look, look let's, let's dispel. Let me dispel this myth once and for all, right? John Lydon and Keith Levine are not geniuses, not musical geniuses. John Lydon is a very great, is a great, was a great front man. He wrote some really, really good lyrics. But genius, you know, come on, no. I'd seen how they'd worked when they were recording Flowers of Romance. I went to the studio with Martin Atkins and I saw what they'd done. They hadn't done anything. Keith wasn't there to be seen. It was Martin Atkins and Nick Lornay the studio producer who basically kick-started the Flowers of Romance album and recorded all those big drums and stuff to, to make the tracks. And when I got to New York, a lot of the stuff that was recorded was was absolute pap. It really was rubbish. And it needed somebody to get hold of it and, and, and give it a direction and a purpose. We had, we had no discussion about the musical direction of the band. It was basically just noodling about in the studio and then John would go and wail his lyrics over the top. That's, yes. that, that's how it worked. And that's how they, I mean, they created some great tracks over the years, believe me, you know, the public image, the song, you know, Religion, Annalise and all those tracks. I don't know how they created those, to be honest. Yeah. But no, they're not geniuses. They're not musical geniuses either. They're quite musically bereft of any, any musical, uh, any musical skill, you know. Nobody ever said, oh, we're going to play an E minor at the start of this. We're going to go to change key to this. There was no musical discussion. It was mm. just basically noodling about in the studio. So, so they, rec they recorded hours and hours of tape. I think they recorded something like 15 or 16 reels of two-inch recording tape. It was a phenomenal amount of stuff. And most of it was rubbish. 
Right. So it wasn't like a kind of Frank Zappa meets Captain Beefheart where you, you know, where you sort of record the sound of thin air and you're thinking, oh, my God, we're right out there on the different planet. This was just people who were just a bit like, blimey. Yeah. And there was a lot of drugs going around at the time. And that cocaine in the early 80s was very good quality and there was loads of it about. I couldn't say who actually took it because that would be very remiss of me to, yes. to say who took what. But uh, I, I certainly did. I don't mind admitting that. There's plenty of it around. It's being hoovered up by the bagful, and uh, I don't think that really added to the to the artistic process in any in any positive way whatsoever. Yes, because it's interesting, isn't it? From an outsider's point of view, you think these are tortured geniuses who are just kind of pushing the em- the, the creative envelope to that absolute. They're breaking down the barriers. They're taking it to another degree, but they're not really, are they? It was the opposite of that. Now, now to be fair. John was always very fair when you worked with him because he would always say, you know, you, you play what you want, you wear what you want, you say what you want, don't let anybody tell you what to do, which is fine. But it gave you a lot of freedom to do whatever you wanted to do and who you wanted to be, and I appreciated that at the time. However, sometimes you needed somebody to grab hold of things and give it a direction. Otherwise, everybody was wandering around aimlessly in a musical direction with, and not coming up with any coherent output it's all right saying play what you want but if that is totally adverse to what somebody else is playing it just you know it's very very hit or miss and mostly it it was a miss yes because because a lot of bands have a great rhythm section you know you had the stones i mean i must admit fleetwood mac you know john mcphee and uh, mick fleetwood and then you had people like sly and robbie did you and Martin feel like you had something quite special at that time. Could you, you know? I, I, I thought we were, I wouldn't say special, but I'd known him a long time and I've been playing with him for a long time. So, you know, all that through the hots years and uh, and playing the Brian Brain stuff, we'd played together a lot. So I knew how he drummed and he knew how I played bass. So I'd always lock in with his bass drum and uh, we became very, a very tight rhythm section. So when we did play the pill gigs and played live, the rhythm section was really t- was really tight, and and that would just leave uh, Keith to free form his guitar over the top of that, and John to free form his lyrics over the top of that. And you have to bear in mind that when Pill played live at that time, we had no set list, we had no set length for any of the songs. We would just start playing a song, and just keep playing it until we got fed up with it. And then we'd stop, and then we'd have a discussion about what we were going to play next. Yes. Actually, on the stage, we'd say, "What should we do next?" Oh, Death Disco. No, I don't fancy doing that. Let's play, oh, Bad Baby, let's do that. And that's how it went on. So it was totally, total chaos, really, from one song to the next. Yes, interesting. Death Disco might last three minutes or or ten minutes. Depends how we felt at the time. And did you feel a little bit like, my God, I've just stepped into the shoes of Jar Wobble, the famous Jar? No, no, not at all. I wasn't phased by that at all. I, I, I didn't rate his playing being particularly again I had that prog rock background so as far as I was concerned I was, I was technically a better bass player than he ever was you know he played some great songs and played some great bass lines you know they are fantastic but that, that didn't come from a place of uh, great musicianship that came from experimentation he was kind of lucky there um, so I wasn't in awe of him and I knew I wasn't going to emulate his sound so I, I came in to Pill and said right I'm not going to try and pretend to be Jar Wobble I'm going to come into Pill and just be me so I had a different playing style. I played with a plectrum rather than with my fingers, and my sound that I usually had was a bit more of a, a clankier sound rather than a big, fat, over-based, dubby sound that Wobble was famous for. Yes, 
So yeah, I just I, I wasn't in awe of him at all. I've met him a couple of times previous to that. He wasn't he wasn't on my uh, Christmas card list either. Funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because what's it like when you meet other members? You know, like you know, we're famous with Marky Smith and the Fall. You know, there's a lot of ex-members. What do you sort of with the with the members of ex-members appeal? Do you occasionally go? Oh, what phase? What period were you in? And what album? Would, what tour was that? You know, and and sort of swap notes. Uh, it's fun if you get a, a bunch of musicians together. I mean, I've done a lot of playing. Subsequently, much later, I started to play with Department S, and we would tour with bands, you know, the Ruts and the Vapors and the Rosillos and people like that. And when you get together, you invariably end up telling stories about the old days. Oh yeah, we played there. I remember when we did this back in 1983. So you, you endlessly bore people, to put bore the pants off people <laughs> by by saying what you used to do back in the 80s. They'd say, "Oh, did you play on that record?" Yeah, I played on that. Oh, did you? Yeah, so we, we always have those sort of conversations. Yes, but then did so when it came to an end with Peel, was it yeah. kind of was it your decision to say, "Look, I've had it. I'm going." Yeah, it was. It's my decision. I'd. It, it was a trip, trip, trip of things. I wasn't being paid. The hotel bill didn't get paid at the Iroquois Hotel, so I had to do a runner from the hotel. I slept on Keith's sofa for a while. Then I went and stayed with one of the road crew for a while. And we, it was just like it was an absolute nonsense. But we were talking about going to Japan, and uh, my girlfriend was living with me in New York at the time, and they said, oh, she can't come with us. And I said, well, that's a bit unfair because you'll be taking your – girlfriends why can't she come and Keith Levine said that she was a liability uh, I thought that's funny coming from you mate but there you go and, and I thought that's it I've had enough of this shit I'm just gonna go home I didn't tell anybody we me and the girlfriend packed our bags got myself a plane ticket uh, I managed to squirrel away enough uh, dollars here and there to pay for a, a ticket a one-way ticket home and I just said phone Martin up and said Martin I'm going home tomorrow I'll see you and just when I got on the plane, I never never spoke to him again. Yes, my God. But you spoke to Martin again, haven't you? Yes, subsequently to that, some years later. I mean, he went off, carried, went, he went to Japan after that, and he carried on playing with them for a while, and then he went on to join you know, uh, Ministry and Killing Joke and Nine yes. Inch Nails for a bit. So he, he had a great, great well, career. I know. He, he... And I came back to England, and I was just really, really despondent and really, really pissed off with it all, the whole business of it. It was horrible. So Yes, well, uh, absolutely. I got, I got offered a, a tour with Kim Wilde when I came back in 83, and I turned that down because so I just couldn't go through it all again and going through all the shit. Yes. Not realising that that would probably have been a good thing to have done. Probably, probably run quite professionally, I would have thought. I would have thought, so, yes. <laughs> and I would have probably got paid as well. So yes. My own stupid fault. Well, it's and tricky, also, I, got, it? I got a call from Southern Death Cult who wanted a bass player as well. And I, I said, no, I'm not interested. I thought there was some little indie band, but then, of course, they went on to become the cult. And um, perhaps I should have taken that job as well, but I didn't. So there we are. You know, that's fate, lending a hand there. And I, I went and got a job for 20 years. That was it. Did you ever find out what they said when, when they went, where's, where's Pete? Oh, he's gone. Did, <laughs> did, uh, <laughs> did no. they say good or did they go, what? Well, I knew. No, no, I, I didn't. They tried to, they did auditions for a new, a new bass player because Keith Levine left them just after I did. Like two weeks later, they had a big fight with John and, and Keith Levine left. And uh, so they were looking for a guitarist and bass player, but they did auditions for a bass player. And one of the people that turned out was Flea. Okay. Flea turned up to uh, to audition and they started playing with, it was just Martin was there with the bass players. 
And Flea and Martin just started jamming along. And it was like straight away, Martin said, right, everybody else can go home. This is the guy we want. We need this guy. And Flea just said, no, I've got my own band, Chili Peppers. He said, I'm, I'm going to work on that. He said, I just wanted to play with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Blimey, that was casual. So he never joined, but he, Flea would have been, could have been my replacement, which I thought would have been very funny indeed. Yeah. But did you, I mean, you know, often, you know, there's those kind of interviews that we can see on YouTube and places where, you know, people are being, into, you know, like uh, are having that kind of, interview with various different people and everyone's getting very tetchy and John's swearing and Keith's looking bored and everyone looks like they're on drugs. I mean, was that quite a genuine vibe? You know, you get a vibe that it's not very nice and then and they're not putting on. Is that Was that how it was with the band? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, John could turn on you on, on a knife edge. You know, he could be his best mate. He did it to me a couple of times, just turned on me for, for no apparent reason. And I saw him do it with with interviewers. These young kids would come in to interview the great Johnny Rotten, and he, if he didn't like them or they asked the wrong sort of question in the wrong way or dared ask him about the Sex Pistols, he would just literally tear them to shreds. And I, I used to feel so sorry for some of these young kids. You could see them visibly shaking because they were so scared. And yes. it, was all, it was all this bravado. It was a bully. It was basically being a bully, and it was horrible to watch as a 24-year-old as, a as I was then. Thinking back now, I would have just punched him straight in the in the face for talking like that to me. You know, <laughs> I couldn't couldn't deal with it so much as being a young kid. Yes, well, it's, but yeah. that's what it was like. That's what that's what it was like. Yeah, it's like that all the time with with dealing with anybody. Yeah, really difficult. Because it was all yeah. I remember a few of those ones. You know, talking about my band. My band. Yeah, it's, it's sad really. But luckily, Martin was my friend, so he was my ally in the band. So we. We we got on really well, me and Martin. So I, I kind of just stuck with him. If it hadn't been for Martin, I, I probably would have left before the time I did anyway, because it was so awful. Yes. So then, decades, literally, almost <laughs> decades, kind of passed. Did the bass guitar just sit in a cupboard? And or did? And I always had, I've always had guitars. I, I had six string guitars as well, so I was always playing at home. I, I got married and had a couple of kids. Um, during the 80s and 90s so I was very busy raising a family so my music was centred around them so I'd be playing guitar for the kids at night when they went to bed and stuff and then it wasn't until the technology changed we we had two things came um, quite close together that was the ability to record at home relatively cheaply rather than booking a recording studio which suited me down to the ground to have a little studio at home and the internet, of course, which meant I could meet up with people and start collaborating with people all over the place. MySpace was the first platform that came along yes. that enabled me to make contact with Martin Atkins again. Um, I made contact with other people to work with, so we sent each other songs and stuff. So I got back into music in sort of the late 90s. Okay, yeah, so that started to come out. And obviously your, the love of prog rock, did that stay with you or has that stayed with you all your life? Uh I guess so. I guess it's still there. People do still take the mickey out of it. I did an album last year called Contrivances for the Soul, and there's a couple of songs on there which are in a difficult time signature, which is really going back to my proggy roots, I suppose. And they're longer songs as well, so they're like eight minutes long yeah. in 7-4. So it's kind of, yeah, I guess it has stayed with me then. Well, no, it's, it's good. I mean, you know, I still listen to, you know, various things like Close to the Edge and... I do love, you know, Heart of the Sunrise. I still think yeah, that's one of the Yeah, best. I kind of think, you know, it's, it's the rock and roll thing I, I think is, I find really tiresome now. Um, and 
you know, I ended up playing with Department S, and that was quite interesting for a while. And I thought we were going to start doing something a little bit more avant-garde, a little bit more left field. But we ended up just being a rock and roll band again. I thought we've been doing this since the 1950s, you know, that the drummer, guitar, singer at the front, doing the same poses, the same poses with the guitars. And, and it's that I find really tiresome, the straight rock and roll. So when I do music, I do try to make it a, a little bit different, either in the structure of the song or, or the way it's the way it's produced or the way it's written, trying to do something a little bit different. And I guess that does hark back then to my progressive roots rather than just harking back to rock and roll. Yes. Did that, you did your time in Department S, did that sort of... um. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, did that sort of re? Was that quite nice? Sort of... It was. It was. It was a really. I was five years with Department S, um, and we did some fantastic gigs. The guys in the band were, were great. You know, I was, I was friends with them all, and I'm still friends with them now. It, there's no animosity there when I left. Um, but we had we did a great album called uh, "When All Is Said and All Is Done" in 2015, which is a great album. I co-wrote and produced that with the rest of the band. Uh, released a couple of singles and as I say did some great great shows and um after five years of that it just became a bit became very tire, tiresome lugging my tired old bones up and down the motorway carrying my own bass guitar speakers up and down stairs yes. and getting home at three in the morning three in the morning um, it's always three it, in the morning isn't it it's yeah. always three in the morning <laughs> nobody wants to drive home from manchester at that time of night, really, you know. No. And the kind of the, the steps forward I wanted to go musically in terms of being a little, a little bit more adventurous, a little bit more uh, avant-garde, perhaps, like I say. Nobody else was keen on doing that. So it was just like, guys, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna finish up. I gave him plenty of warning. It wasn't like when I left Pill, literally overnight. <laughs> I said, you know, guys, when we play, uh, there was a festival coming up. I said, once that's done, I'm, I'm finished. And yes. then I very quickly found another bass player and uh, I got a new drummer as well. The drummer of Eddie and the Hot Rods is drumming for them now. Right. It all, so, yes. Well, I think in a way, you know, you probably think, oh, God, is Vic there? I just probably don't want to hear that song any, anymore. It was kind of tiresome to play. But, then, of course, you have to, don't you? You have to play that song. We, we had to play it. It opened a lot of doors for us in terms of getting gigs because everybody knew that song. Yes. Even if they hadn't heard the band, if they didn't know who Department S were, of course, a lot of people said Department S. They just mentioned the TV series of that name. Um, but when you started singing the song to them, they knew exactly who we were. So it opened a lot of doors. So thankful for that. But when it came to play, it, it did get a little bit kind of tiresome. So we, we used to do a seven-minute version of it where in the middle we just do this kind of <laughs> free-form piece that went in the middle where we could just jam away and be a bit more creative, you know. And it's that's, quite a simple song. Well, yes, and to be honest, you don't. If, it, if it's your favourite song and, and that's what the crowd wants, you don't want it to be over in two minutes, do you really? No, no. You, you, want, you want to build it. Almost milk, unique, it. milk, milk it. Milk it for all it's worth. That's well, absolutely. It's a bit like, you know, I mean, yes, could, could sort of string out a song for 10 minutes. And by the oh, end of God, it, you know, thing. you couldn't even remember the beginning. But it's kind of exciting. <laughs> I, still, I still go back to The Heart of the Sunrises. One of the great, because there's so much in that one track, you know. I just yeah, think it's, yeah, it's uh, absolutely. It's beyond. Might have to play that again now. Now you've mentioned it, I'll have to go and play that when I finish talking <laughs> well, to you. Well, yes, I mean, but give yourself ten minutes because you can't skip to the end when it gets <laughs> to, the, to the climax. But then this year you brought out a solo album. Yes. So how did well, um... I'd, I'd, I'd left? I've, I've got a studio at home, so that works to my advantage. So I can record whenever I want. So rather than having to record. At times where you don't feel particularly creative, I just you know record at any strange times of the day, 
or whenever. So that's really useful. So I'm always working on songs. And I'd written some songs that were supposed to be earmarked for a new Department S album. But because I left the band, I took the songs with me and decided to release them on my own. So, yeah, I did Contrivances for the Soul uh, just on a vinyl and digital uh, download. Uh, no CDs this time, but it's a nice coloured, numbered, uh, limited edition vinyl, a proper album with a gatefold sleeve. Looks really smart. It's really nice, really proud of it. Yes. So that was that was last year. So, yeah. But then I'll send you a copy. Oh. Let me have your address and I'll send you oh, a copy. But do you have another album out this year as well? I've been doing some singles. I've been doing releasing digital singles, really, and I'm doing, I've just done one with Lee Hegarty uh, from Ruts DC called World in Sunlight, and that's due out on the 24th of July as a digital, digital only. Yes. So there won't be a physical copy there, because I'm, I'm not touring with it, so I'm, I won't be going out to sell physical copies. There's no point in doing the CDs for that. So it's just available digitally. So that's all. I'm not doing another album. I'm just doing digital, digital singles, really. Right, because when you brought out Twisted, which was like ten years ago. Oh my God, that was a long time ago. That's the first thing I recorded on my little home studio with the tiniest amount of equipment. Oh my God, with a dial-up modem. Oh God, I love that time. <laughs> that God, noise that <laughs> of waiting for it to connect and just thinking, is it? Is it? Oh. God, and, oh. then, and then being conscious of the phone bill because obviously, yeah, yeah, but, and then somebody would ring you up and, and, and interrupt the connection and you'd lose your dial up. So, yeah, it was, it was very yeah, but that's that was a long time ago. That was, that was the yes. first thing I did. And what oh, was it God. because you did there was a couple of tracks on there which was very credited to Peel, I suppose, Slave. I, and, uh, yeah, I, I did it, yeah, that was I had a John Lydon sample in it that I manipulated. There's a, also I did a track called Blue Water, which was one of the songs we'd recorded when I was in New York with Pill. So I did a cover version of that on that album. Yes. And which is kind feel... of ironic because I, I had to pay for the licence for that. Okay. I literally had to pay the publishing to release my own bloody song. <laughs> well, there you go. It is tricky. <laughs> but and also, yeah. have you done, you've done a book as well, haven't you? Yeah, I wrote my autobiography last year called uh, They Call Me Joyless, <laughs> which goes from basically from birth all the way through how I got into music, um, how I joined Pill. Brian Bray, Cowboys International, Department S, and beyond. Yeah, so it's very you... well received. It's practically sold out now, so I'm gonna have to do a, I'm gonna have to do a reprint of that at some point. Print on demand. That's the way. But did you? I mean, was that quite a therapeutic experience putting that together? Uh, it, it 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 wasn't intended to be, but it ended up being so. Yes, very much. Particularly because I was going right back for my childhood, going through all of that, and I was talking to my mum about stuff that had happened, and my dad passing away and stuff. Yeah, it was quite cathartic going through all of that and getting things in order, I suppose, in my mind of writing it down and saying this happened. It's a chronological story of my life. So it's very much getting things in order and and dealing with some of those things and some of the people in that. Yeah, it's very much, very much I I must admit, I do love, you know, a lot of these books that have come out. And I I know Wayne, Wayne Hussey did one last year and he wrote it. He did. did. It's supposed to be very good. And uh, he only got up to the point where... I think he'd either be started. I think he was only up to Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> He's like, you know, it was a bit like there was a lot to write down. Or yeah, well, there, was, yeah. there wasn't enough. Of, there wasn't enough for my early music career to fill a book, so I had to fill it with a lot of stuff before I joined the band. <laughs> I, had to, <laughs> I had to pad it out a bit. I wasn't. Just, I haven't done as much as Wayne Hussey. So no, but I think everybody, you know, and I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's been a lot of. The passing of time, I've got a theory of like 20 or 30 years where people can sometimes start to look back on things 
and feel quite differently for various reasons. But you can't, you couldn't sort of reflect on it after five years or ten years. It's almost like several decades, and then you feel like okay. But I guess so. I kind of never really thought about it that much. I mean, the other reason I, uh, the re- reason for for writing it was to leave something behind for me kids, I suppose. Um, I mean, my, I, I have no detail of what my father did when yes. he was growing up. I kind of know what he did and what jobs he had, but there's no detail of it, of when and where he did stuff. So I thought if I'd write all this down, at least my kids know what I did, good yes. or bad. You know, there's some not there's some not very nice stuff in it, but at least they know they'll know what I did when when I'm when I'm gone. Yeah, and also at the same time, you know, you think well. Because I guess you were as honest as you could be, and you thought, well, I'm going to put a few things to, to just yeah, so no one could ah, you missed that bit, didn't you? Because that was the bit where yeah. you you didn't act particularly good yourself, and it's like, yeah. so you might as well say, look, I put the lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's basically what it was. So I don't know. It's um, it is what it is. So uh, it was very. I wasn't quite sure about doing it originally, and it did take a good couple of years to get it all down on paper. But uh, I'm quite proud of it. People that have read it have really enjoyed it and, and told me so. So that's that's great. Yes. So obviously we're now in a very strange situation in our lives. I mean, what do you feel is because you've got this album coming out this month? <laughs> um, it's just a single coming out this month. Yeah, um, single. Do you? I mean, I, you know, I mean, speaking to dear old Hank Wangford, who'd got an album out. And he was going, God, I'm not feeling that creative at the moment. You know, this was recently, um, you know, during the lockdown. You know, he just wasn't feeling it. I just wondered how, you know, a creative artist copes with these situations, which are a completely new experience, isn't it? So I just wondered how you were sort of feeling and thinking about the future in your uh, Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. I, I, I guess it depends on your own personal situation and which, which lens you're looking at it all through. Uh, for me, the lockdown has actually been quite. And I, I know people have suffered, and I know people, thousands of people have died, and it's a tr- bloody tragedy how that's been handled. But for me personally, where I sit, it's actually been quite, quite a peaceful time because I haven't been going out. I've been able to sitting in pubs with people I don't like, <laughs> not, <laughs> and arguing with people in shops who have been annoying me and stuff like that. So I've been, it's been very peaceful. My partner has been working from home, so we spent a lot of time together. We live in a nice part of the country in Hertfordshire, so we've got a nice outlook. So it suits us. We've got a nice house, thankfully, you know. So we're we're okay, you know, and I've I've quite enjoyed it. I've got my studio here, so I can just immerse myself in that. If I was a working musician having to to, to play live to earn money to put food on the table, I'd probably look on it totally differently. Yes. But I don't have to do that. So for me the art is all about the creation of the art, not about the flogging of the art or the selling of the art. Do you understand what I mean? Absolutely. It's just, I just enjoy creating it. I don't care. I mean, my album has done all right. I've sold a few copies of it, but I don't really care. Do you know what I mean? I'm just proud that I created this piece of art. And it's the same when I write a song. I don't care if it, it sells or it doesn't sell. I've, it's the creating of the art for me that's important. Yes. So yeah, I'm, I'm okay through all this time, but I know it's a, it's a really bad future ahead for the for the touring and working musician, particularly at the grassroots level. Yeah, it's bloody awful for them. Yeah, you know? it's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky. So just, I just wish whether some way, you know, if there's, if there's any way I can help with that, I will certainly do so. You know, if there's, I don't know what help I can give, but obviously if I can, I will. 
I know it's a tricky number, isn't it, really? Yes, we'll we'll wait. So who see. knows what's gonna? Who knows what the future brings? But I'm I'm certainly not. I, I feel feel scared and, and worried for, for lots of businesses going forward. But I, I still and there's still some hope in there. It's got to be, isn't there? There must have be. some hope. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, yes. I'm. I'm just hoping because it's been kind of fortunate. I mean, for the looking at the glass half or it's been fortunate timing. At least we were going into the summer and we've had an amazing sort of weather wise has been great. If we'd been going into the winter, I think it would have been <laughs> difficult because it would have yeah, been a little bit sure. grim. And, um, and just hopefully that the next couple of months will look better than we hopefully dread with various, you know, second spikes and all that. And you never know, it might just... You never know. You and never... my guess is, musically, for, for bands, it's going to be... I, I think you can write off this year, this whole year. Uh, if, if you're a larger band, you're booking quite a long way ahead, normally. Yeah. You know, so the bands that, that were booked to play in August and September, October, probably all been cancelled now. So they, you know, you won't book them at short notice again. For the smaller bands, you might... You know, you, you can get up and running quite quickly if you've got a venue where you can allow people to come in. Yes. If they're allowed to stand in a group, again, you might have smaller venues opening. But I think you pretty much write it off for the whole year and, and look look to next year now to try and have some sort of rebirth of things. Yes, but I just rem- I just remember when you were saying that, I was thinking, God, Genesis with, you know, Phil Collins were re- reforming and doing dates, weren't they? And hope- hopefully Phil will be... Still able to do get through the next uh, year and do it again, I guess. Yeah, but I feel sorry for you know, bands like uh, you know, Ruts DC. I know them well, and they were supposed to be in America doing a doing a tour. You know, they had loads of things, really good things lined up, and they were they were kind of on a wave of, of, of popularity again. They re-released the Crack album. They done a they done a new album called Music Must Destroy, which was brilliant, and they were gaining some momentum of having a, a resurgence of the power of the Ruts. You know, it's great to see. They did a they did a headline tour last year and it was bloody brilliant. It was sold out, and that's all been whipped away from them. You know, an American tour taken away and touring with uh, they were supposed to be touring with the Stranglers actually as well. So you know, that's for them. It's been a real bitter blow, yes. coming totally the wrong time in their in their kind of their band's involvement. Oh, I know. So it's a shame. Well, hopefully they'll be able to um, keep safe well and um rock next year but yeah yeah i mean it's probably a lot easier said than done isn't it just going fingers with, crossed just fingers crossed that's fingers, all. yes absolutely they'll be back at the i think vegas has a sort of punk and bowl, bowling event don't they in may so hopefully they'll be there yeah next so. year but look what would you just lastly what would you say if you could say anything to an 18 year old self that was starting out in this kind of interest and, and sometimes a murky world that is rock and roll <laughs> well of course i'd like to say you know that the sensible the sensible me would say don't do it go and do something else but the, the real me says do exactly what you did don't do anything different because it all adds to the to the, the colouring book, which is your life, and it makes you all the bit all the more interesting for it. The fact you've had a colourful life, you know. I don't. I don't want my colouring book to be coloured in grey. I want it to be lots of different colours. So yes. I'd say to my eighteen-year-old self, "It's going to be tough, son, but just go and do it anyway. Throw caution to the wind. Jump in with both feet yes. and enjoy the enjoy the ride. And occasionally punch someone, but don't. Occasionally yeah. punch someone, but not not too hard. And <laughs> don't, I don't worry the tears." 
but your tears will soon dry. <laughs> <laughs> God, yes. Well, look, I'm really pleased you're sort of, you know, you're feeling so optimistic, actually. It's, it's great to hear, actually. Yeah, I'm in, a, I'm in a great place, so, yeah, that's good. Yes. Well, look, Pete, thank you ever so much for this part two. Um, it's a pleasure talking to you, David. Yeah, well, nice thank to, you ever so much. Nice well, I hope, hope you're, you and your wife are, um, yes, keep well and enjoy the flowers. Thank you very much, David. I'll speak to you again soon. Yes, hopefully. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Well done if you got there. Anyway, I enjoyed it, and that's the main thing. Now, that was me in conversation with Pete Jones to find out more about life in music. Um, And what can I say? There I know. Dramatic silence. Anyway, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at... C86 show and also all these uh, interviews have been archived so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean just do at C86 show. It's all there and much, much more. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. We will be back.